Welcome to Every Texan Talks, the legislative update hosted by Every Texan, where our policy experts and political insiders cut through the noise at the Texas legislative session, break down what's happening at the Capitol, and why Texans should care. Hello and welcome. I'm Mari Sabono, CEO at Every Texan, and today we're talking school funding. With a huge voucher debate and some other possible school ed reforms on the menu this session, we're gonna be hearing a lot of talk about what our public schools do and don't need. But our school funding system is incredibly complex and there's still a lot of confusion on how our schools are funded. So to shed some light on this, I have one of Texas's top experts on school finance, Chandra Villanueva, who is also our Director of Policy and Advocacy at Every Texan. But before we get started, I really have to put into context who Chandra is. She's kind of a big deal. So for those of you who don't know, I'm a, I'm a huge boxing fan, and there's a legendary boxing historian named Burt Sugar, who was sort of the undisputed boxing expert for modern boxing until he passed away about 10 years ago. And he, you know, he was truly iconic. He was so iconic that when he passed away, George Willis once said that Sugar had probably forgotten more about boxing than most will ever know, except he never forgot anything. So basically, that's who you are, Chandra. You're the Burt Sugar of Texas school funding. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. That was quite the introduction. <laughs> I try. I try. <laughs> So we're going to start with with the basics today. How are schools in Texas funded? Yeah, so in the most basic forms, our schools are run through a very complex set of formulas to determine what they're entitled to receive for educating their kids. And this formula starts with what we call the basic allotment, which is sort of a per student amount of money that everything is based on. And right now that is $6,160 per student. And from there, you make adjustments both for the district characteristics, like if it's a really small district or a fast growth district, and then you make uh, adjustments based on your populations. How many low-income students do you have? How many emergent bilingual students, special education students? Okay, hold hold on yeah. one second. So school funding is formula-based. Yes. And so we're talking about the, the building blocks in the formula. Right. And so our first step is the basic allotment, which, yes. you, which you just talked about. But then we also have weights in the school right. funding formula. Yep. And those are the adjustments that we make for special populations. We call right. those weights because we give them more funding. Right, because those populations are more expensive to educate. Exactly. Okay, so you mentioned special education. Yep. And then you also said emergent bilinguals. What does that mean? Emergent bilingual is a new term that the state is using to describe our English language learner students. They changed the language last session to try to reflect that being bilingual is actually an asset and not a deficit before they would use language such as uh, limited English proficiency, which is really putting the emphasis on the limits, and emergent bilingual is trying to recognize that being bilingual is an asset for our state. Yeah, and that, that was a big policy win that was pushed by our partners over at IDRA. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so we have special education, um, kids who are, um, need special education, children who are emergent bilinguals, and then there is another category. Yeah, um, our low-income students, yes. those who qualify for free and reduced lunch programs. Okay, why are, why are those students considered more expensive to educate? Um, often they have other challenges. Um, being poor just 
is really hard on families. I mean, I grew up uh, really low income on those programs and we didn't have the resources that a lot of other families had. We didn't have um, trips to the museums and always somebody to read to us at night and all of those sort of other enriching activities that some students get. Um, some students also are very highly mobile. Um, being low income, oftentimes you're getting evicted or you're constantly searching for lower rent or grandma needs help. Um, so we see that that happens a lot more in low income families where these kids are highly mobile and just aren't as exposed to as many as the enriching activities as um, more affluent peers are. That makes sense. How, how many students are in the public education system in Texas today? About 5.7 million kids. 5.7 million kids. And do you have, do you have approximately by any chance the breakdowns um, or kind of a, a range, an estimate for the percentage of students in each of those high no. risk categories? Yeah, um, I know that we're about 60% low income. I believe it's something around 30% emergent bilingual. Um, special education has is a trickier number because the Texas Education Agency was suppressing enrollment for a long time down to about 8.5%, but since that's been let up, um, I know that those percentages are growing, but I'm not exactly sure what they're at, at right now. But at the end of the day, when we're talking about students who fall into these more expensive to educate um, categories, we're talking about millions of students Exactly. The state. Okay. Right. I mean, over you know 60% being low income alone is the majority. Of students. A majority of students. Sure, that makes sense. Okay, so we have, we're talking about the school funding formula. We have the basic right. allotment. We have the weights. Yep. What happens next? So then you figure out what you're entitled to um, based on all of those populations and characteristics. And that's what your the state says that your school should have to provide a, an education and to meet, you know, the Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills, which we call the TEKS. And um, you can think of that entitlement as like a bucket or a cup. And local dollars are collected from property taxpayers and that fills up the bu your bucket first. And then the state will fill up that bucket if you're not able to generate enough money locally. Through, and the, it, through property taxes. Well, the state's share is mainly sales tax and there's okay. a couple other things like lottery and some uh, property tax relief fund, available school fund, um, some other things. There's about six funds that make up the state's share, but the vast majority of it is sales tax. Okay. So if you can't generate enough property tax on your own, then the state fills up your bucket. If you're able to overflow your bucket, if you have really high property wealth in your school district, then your bucket will overflow and you collect more money than you're entitled to. And that's what we call recapture or Robin Hood. Um, but I think the other important thing to know about just this really basics of how we fund our schools is that very beginning building block, that um, basic allotment, it's completely arbitrary. It's based on absolutely nothing. There's what, do you, no... what do you mean by that? So when, when they set the number, when they yes. set the number for how much each student gets, it wasn't based on... You, so you mentioned TEKS. Those are that's, right. those are like the education. That's like the curriculum that, yep. that state law says that teachers have to deliver. Exactly. Okay. And so when they set the basic allotment, they didn't set that based on how much it costs nope. to deliver that education. It's just, it's, it's just an arbitrary number. Arbitrary number pulled okay. completely out of thin air and adjusted at the whim of the legislature. It's been stagnant now for four years. Four years. What, what about the weights for the um, special populations? Those are also arbitrary. Okay, when were those set? 
Um, most of them were set in 1984. Um, some of the special oh, wow. education weights, I think, were more recent. I think 1995-ish was the last time there was a big overhaul on that. Um, HB3 in 2019 made some slight adjustments to the what we call comp ed weight, which is for our low income students. Mm -hmm. um, but the majority of our um, emergent bilingual students are still receiving the 10% um, above base level that they've been getting since 1984. There was a slight um, additional 5% increase for students who are in a dual language program, but mm. only about 20% of our emergent bilingual students are actually in a dual language. So 80% of uh, emergent bilingual students are still at the 10% additional funding. So as our curriculum has gotten more rigorous, as we've moved into a more modern era, era with more complicated technology and more skills that students need to be college and career ready, we still have a formula that's substantially based on um, weights that were set in the 80s. Exactly. Okay. And and the weights in the basic allotment really go hand in hand because what if 10% is the right amount, mm -hmm. but the base level should be much higher. Ah. You know, and so you kind of have to figure out what is your base level and then figure out what these special populations need. Um, because maybe if we had a robust base, 10% is right. I highly doubt it. But until we, you know, start off at a base level that's not arbitrary, it's hard to just add another arbitrary figure on top of an arbitrary figure and say that that's what these populations need to be successful. Wow. Okay. So our, we have a school funding system mm -hmm. that's based largely on property taxes. Can you, yeah. for folks who are hearing these concepts for the first time, can you kind of explain what's meant by that? Yeah. So, um... Property wealth varies, you know, across the state. And so Texas, though, we're, we're a very prosperous state. People have been moving here. We've seen our property values increase. We have oil and gas. We have oil and gas. We have manufacturing, industrial properties, chemical refineries, you know, oil refineries. We mm -hmm. have very big capital-intensive, wealthy properties. And we definitely have rising property values. And we have rising property values, and those translate into rising property taxes. Mm. And so for the longest time, what's been happening is when our values go up, um, the state puts in less money because it's all about filling those buckets. So as our property values go up and our property tax collections go up, we've been able to fill our buckets on our own more often. And some of our buckets have been pouring over, mm. absolutely overflowing. Um, and instead of using that to increase funding for schools, our state has been basically using a lot of that to save money on their end and offer tax breaks usually to corporations. And that's really you know, created a lot of mistrust for both our property tax system and for our schools. Because as we see our property tax bill increase, we're still hearing that our schools are underfunded, our teachers are underpaid, our classrooms are overcrowded. So people start thinking, well, I'm paying more, I'm paying more, my school must not be a good steward of my public investment. Mm. But what they don't know is that because it's formula driven, that the more we put in doesn't mean more for our schools, it just means the state puts in less. It's it's formula driven in a way that's arbitrary and yes. not necessarily pegged to the cost of educational needs. And then on top of that, over time, the um, student po the special needs student populations have been increasing exactly. in our state. Okay. Exactly. So it's yeah. sort of like a vicious cycle. It is a very, very vicious cycle. 
And we've had multiple opportunities to invest in these special populations, um, opportunities to study the cost of education, and the legislature has taken a pass at every opportunity. Why is that, do you think? Honestly, I think it's because our students don't reflect the legislature. Our students are increasingly brown and black, and that is not the way that our legislature looks. And, and you can see a correlation in the disinvestment in our public education. Um, we hear a lot in public discourse about recapture, and you mentioned mm -hmm. recapture, or sometimes Robin Hood, as it's referred to. And um, frequently, um, Robin Hood is cast as the villain in yep. the, as, as more and more school districts are feeling the pinch and are feeling underfunded, you'll also, you'll often hear um, about Robin Hood as, as cast as the villain in that, in that narrative. Um, so can you, you know, state again what um, recapture or Robin Hood is right. and how you would respond to Robin Hood as the villain in the school funding story? Right. So... In, in school finance, there's two separate concepts that often don't get recognized. So there's the issue of equity, and there's the issue of adequacy. And th those are set, just so everyone knows, that is what our state constitution says our lawmakers have to provide in our school funding system, adequacy and equity. Well, at least efficiency. <laughs> <laughs> efficiency. We call, we call it equity. Equity, but, the, but yeah. Constitutional but term is efficiency. efficiency. Sure. But, um, so, so equity is what recapture is all about. Recapture is about leveling the playing field between districts. Um, and that's why, you know, when we go back to that, that bucket analogy of your entitlement, if you're overflowing your bucket, they collect that overflow and they redistribute it back into the system for other schools and charter schools. And so that's all it does is it's leveling the playing field. And that, that's because we have a system, you know, with a system based on property taxes, it means that property wealthy districts can generate more revenue per pupil than and taxing at a lower rate right. than a property poor district can generate taxing at a higher rate. Exactly. And that, that crew when we say equity, we're that's what we're talking about. It's that lack of equality when it comes to revenue generation between districts because we have a system that's based on property taxes. Exactly. We happen to be in San Antonio today and Edgewood ISD and Alamo Heights um, ISD are sort of the classic examples that have spurred a lot of the litigation that have gotten us to the recapture system. Um, when both districts were taxing at a dollar per hundred dollars of property value, Edgewood had about $1,500 per student to spend. Alamo Heights, which is like what, 10 miles down the road, if that, Less. has almost $14,000 to spend. So if we didn't come in and equalize funding between those two districts, we'd be asking one to do, to hire the same quality of teacher, offer the same quality of curriculum at $1,500 a student as a district down the street that has $14,000 per student. So the legislature levels them off. They bring one district up and they bring the other district down. And that's a good thing. Equity is a good thing. We should have a level playing field. All kids deserve the same high quality education. And we, we also all have an interest in making sure that we have a workforce that's properly educated, making sure we have a community where people can be um, thriving participants as opposed to um, drains or, or burdens on our systems. Exactly. And so, so recapture is a good thing with equity, but where the system lacks is adequacy. So instead of bringing the bottom 
up to a sufficient level, we've been bringing the top down. So the districts that are paying into recapture aren't seeing their needs met. They're still seeing gaps in their budget, being unable to give teachers pay raises and pay for all the things that they want in their communities. And at the same time, money is being taken away from them to redistribute to others. So they think about all the things, they daydream about what they could do with all that recapture revenue. What they're not thinking about is their neighboring district that has nothing to daydream about. So mm. the answer to all of this is always the basic allotment. Mm. Um, because that is the tide that rises all ships. And again, it's an arbitrary number. It's not adjusted for inflation. It's been stagnant for four years while we've seen property values skyrocket. So more and more money is going into that recapture system. And if the legislature really cared about funding schools and addressing what they consider a recapture problem, they would raise that basic allotment because that's the tide that rises all ships. Mm. The low wealth districts would get more money. The wealthy districts would keep more of their own money at home mm. and everyone would benefit. Got it. So the recapture almost becomes like the red herring. Because it's tangible, yeah. you can see it. Um, what's harder... And, and especially because I live in Austin, and Austin ISD is the largest payer of recapture, their recapture payment is so large you can almost taste it. Um, that check that they must write to the state, like, it's it's tangible. You can right. see it, you can feel it, like, it's real. But what's harder to see and feel is, is the money they're not getting that they're from not the state. getting that our children <laughs> deserve. The fact that we have a basic allotment that's completely arbitrary. And then, you know, going back to those weights as well. So if the basic allotment was better and bigger, you would get more from those weights. But if we also increase those weights to actually reflect the cost the needs. and the needs of those students, then those districts would have all their needs met, and then we wouldn't even talk about recapture. Austin would still probably be a payer of it, but if we were able to have our needs met and really serve our kids in the way that they deserved, nobody would talk about recapture. We'd actually probably be happy to pay recapture because shared prosperity is the best prosperity. So we, we do have these significant challenges facing our state. What's happening in our school systems now will affect not only the students and the families in those systems, um, like like me, my, I have a mm -hmm. son in public school right now, so what's happening right now is going to impact his future and his trajectory, um, but it's also going to affect where we are as a state, our competitiveness on a national level, our ability to attract employers who want well-educated employees. Um, so this, you know, this is a really critical issue on a lot of fronts, and as you mentioned, the pandemic uh, changed the landscape even more. We have a really urgent issue happening with our teacher workforce, as you highlighted in a joint report with the AFT recently. We're really in an emergency state when it comes to the status of teachers, a teacher shortage on all front across the state, um, record low teacher morale. Uh, and so a lot writing on this session. What can we expect from our lawmakers this session? What should we be looking out for as a session goes on for the next 140 days or so? Right. No, I think, you know, we, we also have um, revenue projections that are quite high due to inflation um, as well. So we're in a unique position where the legislature actually has resources to make yeah. real investments. We have, we have a critical problem, but we legislators this session also have about $133 billion um, revenue, quote unquote, 
surplus um, that represents almost 26% more than what they had to play with during the last session. So we, it's, you're, it's a unique situation in the sense that we have an urgent problem, but we also have a big pool of resources that we can be used to addressing this problem. Exactly, and so now is the time to make investments that, will re that have returns going forward. When we invest in our education system, we will be able to attract employers. We will have people who are prepared for high-wage jobs who can then keep fueling the economy. Um, that's what we really need to put our investments in. Increasing the basic allotment is something, is like a no-brainer. It hasn't been done in four years. And because of uh, HB3 that was passed in 2019, if the basic allotment increases, um, it triggers an automatic pay raise for educators. So we know that that will go into wages and when wages are increased, spending increases and our economy keeps moving. Um, we also, are funding our schools based on attendance rather than enrollment. Um, that should cost us about $3 billion to switch over to that. That's really, that is like nothing for the amount of money that we have right now to spend three, maybe four at the most. Um, and a, a study out of California that has a slightly larger population than us, uh -huh. said about 3.7 billion for wow. their state. So that's probably comparable to what we could expect in a price tag. And, and that's really important and something that came up in the um, during the pandemic as well. We're one of only six states that funds based on attendance rather than enrollment. And when the pandemic hit, we saw declines in attendance. But that doesn't mean that kids aren't being served. Our schools went above and beyond, um, going door to door, dropping off educational packets, scrambling to set up Zoom um, classrooms and things like that. And attendance is not an exact science, especially when you're dealing with these remote and hybrid situations. I have a good friend in Austin ISD who had two kids um, in virtual education and every single day she got a call from the district saying one or both of her kids were not attending school Even that though day. they were. As she was staring at them at her kitchen table logged into their Zoom classes. Wow. So we have no idea how much um, schools were losing even just because of that. Um, of breakdowns in attendance taking. Breakdowns in record keeping, reporting, um, record taking. Exactly. And then even now as students are, we're back to in-person. I know all of a sudden we're dealing with flu again. We're dealing exactly. with RSV again. We're dealing with, you know, spikes in COVID, um, with the decline in masking. All of these things contribute to students being late and absent from school, and it's their attendance that dictates the funding, but the need, you still have to pay the teachers, you still have to keep right. the school running, because exactly. there are other it's kids like the there. Exactly, teacher gets off early on Friday because four kids were gone that week. Absolutely. Um, and even before the pandemic, it was averaging around 300,000 students a year were not being counted or funded at all in our school system. Wow. And, and that's all funding that um, districts should have been receiving but weren't because of the way the formula is set up. Exactly. And then, you know, during the, the worst point in the pandemic, it reached over 400,000, I think it's close to 430,000, even after TEA made adjustments for attendance loss um, that we saw at sort of the peak of the pandemic. That's roughly the entire school population of Arkansas. Wow. It's an entire other state's education system that, like, we just aren't funding. So that's that's a relatively um, simple fix mm -hmm. that it's billions of dollars, but it's relatively small compared to 
um, what we currently spend and what other states spend, it would have a big return on investment. Um, is that what state leaders have said is a priority for this session? Unfortunately, no. What's What's the um, priority when it comes to public ed from our state leaders in our current session? They have not said a lot. I mean, I do believe that there's some talk about increasing the basic allotment, but their real, real focus is vouchers, which takes away from our public education system. How can you, uh, what, what are vouchers and why do you feel they take away from our system? Yeah, so vouchers are a way to transfer public um, dollars to private institutions. And so there's a lot of ways to do it. Um, they've been uh, floating ideas, what they call educational savings accounts, which are almost like debit account, debit cards that you use to pay for education. They can be used for homeschool supplies or to pay tuition at a private school. Um, oftentimes though, these vouchers are not nearly the amount needed for a real reputable private school. There's a reason why private schools cost thirty to $60,000 a year. And the legislature in the past has proposed voucher programs that are around, you know, $5,000. Yes, okay. So if you're a, a low-income family, especially if you have multiple children, there's no way that you can cover that tuition gap. Well, and private schools aren't required to admit and that's their child. Exactly. They, they can discriminate on all kinds of issues, um, academic, student, Students with um, higher needs, disabilities. Right, and, and then the irony is that they always try to start, and we're expecting them to start again this session by pushing vouchers specifically for special ed students. There was a commission that looked at special education funding, mm -hmm. and they're, one of their recommendations is vouchers for those students. And when a special education student does use a voucher to get services outside of a public education system, they also lose all of their civil rights mm -hmm. that they're entitled to. At a public education, at a public school, because um, they don't fall under the purview of federal, exactly. uh, federal laws, federal oversight, exactly, and then in some cases state oversight, exactly. Okay. Well, I definitely um, heard a lot of places where hopefully we can do more in-depth episodes on vouchers, for example, our special education system, but. Um, definitely appreciate this primer school funding 101 for folks who are listening in. Um, Takeaway for me today is uh, legislature needs to spend less time focusing on book bans, more time focusing on supporting our teachers and students. Any final thoughts from you, Chandra? Yeah, this is just we have opportunities. A historic make, opportunity. A historic opportunity to make some remarkable improvements and investments in education and investments in education are investments in our state and our future and our families. We'll end on that note. Thank you. Thanks. And that wraps up our podcast for today. Thanks to our guests. And as always, check out everytexan.org for more information about our work and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.